1 Corinthians chapter 6, when I <clears throat> said what, four months ago now, five months ago, that I was going to start working my way through 1 Corinthians, one of the guys came up to me and said, I'm looking forward to 1 Corinthians 6. <clears throat> I want to hear about us judging angels. Well, <clears throat> here we are. I want to hear about it too. Can can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. Uh, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 8, which are our passage this evening. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your words to us. And I pray that you would help us to understand them to the point of living them. And I rejoice, Lord, that we have never dealt with this in our assembly, but that cannot be said of all churches. Thank you for this. Bless our time together tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is dealing... I think pretty obviously with the subject matter of lawsuits between Christians. And I think that we would understand further that Paul is dealing with what we would call in our world civil suits, that he is not dealing with criminal suits. I think that if it were a matter of that which is a crime against the state, Paul would not be opposed to the state's involvement in the activity. <clears throat> One thing I do want to mention, and I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to get to it, but <clears throat> I think that Paul would mean in, in chapter 6, that there are to be no lawsuits between believers. Not just that there are to be no lawsuits between church members. And some of that is tied to something we don't talk a lot about, and that is whether there is only a local church or whether there is a local and what is sometimes called a universal church. Some people who reject the concept of one large, invisible body of believers that constitutes the church and believes only in the local church could, I'm not saying every one of them would, but could take the position 
that Paul is prohibiting lawsuits between members of only that assembly so that I could not sue you and you could not sue me. But if it was a brother at another independent Baptist church, you could sue him because Paul is only talking about what happens within a local church. But, but Paul is talking about brothers more than he is talking about church members. So, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I want to make sure that we understand, and I think that we do, that Paul is opposed to Christians taking their civil matters to secular courts. And he is very clear about that, both in the way he begins his conversation and the way that he ends it. The first word of our English Bible, interestingly enough, is the word dare. It is also the first word in the Greek text. And the Greek language is very flexible when it comes to word order. We tend to go subject, verb, and but Paul was not under those kinds of constraints. He had the liberty of putting the most important idea or word first. And so his very first word is dare. The word has reference to being bold. It is used 16 times in our King James Bible. Seven of those times it's translated with the word durst, D-U-R-S-T, a word that we wouldn't really use in our modern language. Joseph of Arimathea went boldly and asked for the body of Christ. So there's a boldness to what Paul is doing here. How, how, how bold is this? And then the last word in verse number 8 is that they are doing wrong. No, you do wrong and defraud. And the idea there, the idea of defrauding is to take something that is not yours. Cheat. You cheat. You rob. And that, your brethren. So whatever is going on in the passage, Paul here is highly critical of the Corinthians for the way they bring their civil matters. <laughs> how many could there be? I mean, seriously, folks, how big is this church and what are they doing that you have members in the law court suing each other? And I would just point out, and this is something that we're going to see repeated, we, we, we dealt with the concept pretty extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's going to continue into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Folks, that, that the division and the distinction between saved people and lost people is not just simply what they do on Wednesday nights and Sundays that there is a very real division. There is something completely different about a safe person that is just not true of an unsafe person. And the church is to be a sanctuary for safe people. And safe people, as we will see, are more than capable of resolving their own conflicts. Safe people, we will get to this in chapter 7, safe people bring a completely unheard of perspective to marriage 
than do lost people. And so Paul is, again, drawing this very thick line that there are people who are outside and you're not on the outside, you're on the inside. And people on the outside don't really have anything to do with us that are on the inside. Now the reality is, is that we could have, God could have given us 1 Corinthians 6, 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 8, that's the end of the matter. How dare you do this? It is sin. Stop it. But what we have is what God is doing, and he does a lot in Corinthians, which is talk to them and run them through the reasons. Part of this is because they consider themselves to be very wise, and part of this, folks, is because, I mean, right, let's just back away from the whole Christianity thing and let's just think about being adults. As adults, <clears throat> the things that we do, we understand why we do them, at least in theory most of the time. So you put a small child down to bed at a bedtime and you go, go to bed and they go, I don't want to, and we go, you, you, we don't care if you want to, you go going to bed. And by the time you're an adult, you understand why having a bedtime is a good idea. And, right, you tell a child you can't eat the whole candy bar, and that's the end of the conversation. And by the time you're an adult, you understand why you don't eat the whole candy bar. And being a mature Christian believer, folks, is not just simply not doing one thing and doing another thing. It is understanding why we do the things we do or deny the things that we deny. So, consecrated Christianity requires more than adherence to what somebody else tells us to do. It demands an ability to think, to engage, using the language of Hebrews chapter 5, to exercise ourselves and to make the decisions that God would find sustainable. So, all right, so let's, let's walk through, because what we have in verses 1 through 8 is not really a series of conversations, because there's not two parties, but we have Paul talking to a variety of parties in, in, the assembly, in this dealing. Right? We have two people at law, but Paul is talking to more than two people. He is... He is talking to the body as a whole. And so Paul begins by talking to the assembly, right? Here is, right? This, this is for the guy who's filing the lawsuit, the plaintiff, and the guy who's on the receiving end, the defendant, and this is for everybody in the church. Right? Here's what everybody in the church needs to understand. Right? So Westwood Heights, we need to understand this. You cannot get biblical justice from lost people. You cannot get biblical justice from lost people. You can get some element of justice from lost people, but you cannot get biblical justice from lost people. Verse number one, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? There's the distinction. The unrighteous, the unrighteous, and the righteous. Are you so bold as to take your civil matter 
before those who are unjust. Is every court corrupt? Is every judge up for sale? Is every lawyer a crook? That's not what Paul is getting at, as we will see. Never does Paul suggest that it is not possible for a believer to be mistreated by another believer. In other words, Paul doesn't write, why are you going to court? Nobody would ever do these things. But you have to remember, folks, that Paul lived very close to the world in which the legal system nailed his Savior to a cross. He didn't have a lot of wonderful experiences at the hands of Roman justice. But I think more importantly than that is Paul's understanding of something that we perhaps struggle to understand and that is you cannot solve God's problems the world's way. That is just not an option for us. To solve problems involving the people of God in the pattern of the world. The only other place that Paul uses the word unjust in the entire book of 1 Corinthians, all 16 chapters, is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's the same word to him. We have it as unjust and unrighteous. Here's the question, folks. Is there any possibility that a secular court could see the conflict between two brothers through biblical eyes? Could they see the issue properly? Is there any spiritual goal that a secular court could pursue? If you went to the secular court and you wanted justice, you would want the brother found guilty. Or if you were the defendant, you would want to be found not guilty. But there's no spiritual dimension to what is going on. What spiritual value system can a secular court bring to a church matter? That is not how they see things. And and I'm not suggesting for a moment, folks, really I'm not, that the American justice system is so filled with crooks and criminals that you cannot get a fair trial. I'm saying that it is not a spiritual body. And it is not a spiritually minded entity. So Paul points out to them that they are flawed at the outset. In other words, folks, if the goal is simply to win the judgment, that's not simply a flaw. That's not necessarily even a flaw on the secular court system, but it might be a flaw on the believer. Right? If he has no more lofty goal than to recover, I want my money. Or I want my stuff. Then 
He's, he's not in pursuit of the right goal, and he's pursuing the wrong goal through the wrong system. And so in verses 2 through 5, Paul now expands his explanation to this, which is that spiritual people are competent to judge such matters. So to the, to the body, to, to anybody who would consider this, Paul says it is not right to pursue biblical justice in secular courts. You cannot get it. And to those who receive that, Paul points this out. But you're, you're not without recourse because there is a church. which I would just point off, out to you to go off at a tangent, is not the kind of activity that most church members want to think about having to do when they walk in the door, is it? We just want, we just want to go to church, sing a few songs, hear a good sermon, have our soul nourished, and go home. We don't want to participate in a trial. But that is exactly the scenario that Paul is setting forth here in verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> Verse number 2. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? Did you know that? Did you know that you would judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, <clears throat> are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So if the saints can judge the world, and they will, saints can figure out what's going on between two brothers in conflict. Verse number three. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So there are the two statements. We're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, verse number two is by far the easiest one. It is by far the simplest to explain what is meant by judging the world. First, excuse me, we need to talk about the meaning of the word judge. The word judge does not simply mean or exclusively mean to render a verdict. In fact, folks, judges oftentimes do not have anything to do with the verdict. Juries reach a verdict. Judges govern the trial. Judges ensure that all the rules are followed, or in this case, all the laws are followed. Which, by the way, <clears throat> I've watched a few murder trials, or parts of them, <clears throat> on YouTube. I find them very fascinating. They're incredibly dull and monotonous. Not at all like television. <clears throat> Verse 
But everybody knows the law, and everybody is trying to argue that their part of the law is the part that should be followed, and it's up to the judge to know the law well enough to know which one of the laws applies in this situation. Now, the context really does take us a little bit beyond that. But every time we read the word judge, folks, we just want to understand that judging involves a little bit more than simply going, you're right, you're wrong. Judging has the idea of governance. And ultimately, all judgment belongs to Jesus Christ, John 5, 22 and 23. That the Father himself doesn't judge, but has given all the judgment to the Son so that everybody would give the honor to the Son like they would give to the Father. You can turn to this if you want. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew 20 or 19:28. So here's the way, folks, that we would understand it, and some of this has to do with our entire view of end-time events in the kingdom, or at least my understanding of view of end-time events in, in <clears throat> the kingdom. That's not a duck. That wasn't a duck, that phone ringing, so you're good. Somebody, somebody said to me tonight, I, forgot to, I brought my phone in if you hear a duck. So I wasn't a duck, so it wasn't a call for them. That has nothing to do with anything. I'm just, just babbling. Matthew 19.28. We would, okay, here's what I'm getting at, folks. I believe that there's really going to be an earthly kingdom that that kingdom is going to constitute a tremendously large number of people who are mortal like we are during that kingdom. That Jesus is going to be the king of, of the earth and that he is going to rule the earth through his people, the, the saints that he has raptured and taken to be with him. And that when he comes back to earth, the second coming, not the rapture, we will come with him, we will return to earth, and we will then govern under him. He is the king of all the earth, and he will govern through his people. This was the creation mandate, and it will be recovered. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that, unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, the making all things new, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve tribes, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I think there will certainly be some verdict dimension of that, but it will be verdict dimension in the sense of being completely sinless beings who are completely and thoroughly versed in the Scriptures who are going to render the right verdicts for the right reasons because we are not tainted by sin. And I'm assuming because we have access to the Lord if we need it. <clears throat> so we will judge the world. <clears throat> or Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule, <clears throat> he shall rule, which is the word shepherd, the way a pastor shepherds the flock. He rules the flock with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, 
even as I received of my Father. Or Revelation 5.10, hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign. And that is a form of the word basilica. We will reign as kings on the earth. Or Revelation 20 and verse number 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So again folks, that part really is in my mind relatively simple. Because we're waiting for the kingdom. And we're waiting for the king. And when the king comes, he's going to reign. And when he reigns, his people are going to reign with him. And we will rule the world. We will judge the world. A little bit more complicated is verse number three. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Does Paul mean they're good angels or bad angels? And how can we judge any angel since we've never seen an angel that we know of? And how would you judge a good angel because a good angel has never done anything that needs to be judged? So here's, I'm just going to give you what I would understand it to be, but I would make no claims as to being infallible in this area. I think that this is an additional perspective on our role and status in the kingdom. One of the things that we kind of have to sort through when we come to verse number three, when we judge angels, is to remember that in the original creation, angels were higher life forms than we were. So if I'm judging an angel, I am an inferior judging a superior in the original creation. And the Bible's very clear about that, folks. This is the gist of Psalm 8. This is what is stated about Jesus Christ, that that he was made lower than the angels. Angels are an eternal, invisible, superior, superior intellectually, superior physically. So how does an inferior judge a superior? But when Christ became a man, he was created a little lower than the angels. But when he was crucified and resurrected and ascended, he was exalted far above every principality and power. So that now, by virtue of the work of Christ, one of the consequences of the work of Christ is that humanity is superior to angels. But I don't think that will be brought to full fruition until the kingdom. I don't think that we can engage. We don't have the capacity. Folks, there might be 5,000 angels in this building tonight, and we wouldn't know it. I'm not suggesting that there are. I'm just saying that we don't see them. 
And even when Peter talks about entertaining them, he talks about entertaining them unaware. We didn't know they were angels. So we can't really say, I saw an angel, because we don't see angels. So I think that what Paul is referring to is something that he would understand. Right? He's talking in the future tense, not we are right now judging angels, but we shall judge angels. And it is entirely possible that we will have some governing aspect that just as angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, right, they will serve at our direction quite possibly. So I see that in the governance sense and I see it in the future kingdom sense. But again, we all, we all understand that it's a, it's a very complex thing that Paul is saying and we can talk about it for a long, long time. But that's what I would understand it to mean, is that in our position as, as humanity exalted above angelic powers, we will have governance even at that level. And this is what Paul is doing. I mean, he's not making this stuff up, but he is magnifying Folks, you see what he's doing? Right, what's happening? I mean, let's back up and look what's happening. Here's, here's, here's Joe and here's Bob. And they're at odds with each other. And they're looking for somebody to address their problem. And they look outside the church because their eyes are on the world and they see the solution to their problem in the world. And here's Paul. You guys are dead wrong. The people who are sitting in the building with you are of far superior quality and ability to make those kinds of judgments. It is a testimony, as so often happens in Corinthians, to the worldliness that the Corinthians brought to their church services. And that brings us then to verses 4 and 5. And now if you indulge me, we need to talk a little bit about our King James translation and the way our translators dealt with this. Verse number 3, Know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, Set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. And what our King James Bible does in verse number four is treat the verse as if what should happen, what should happen, is that these kinds of matters are given to the least esteemed in the church. And by the way, the word judgment in verse numbers 2 and in verse number 4, judgments, is one of those Greek words that we use on a pretty regular basis right out of the Greek. It is the word criterion. If you're dealing with the criteria... 
Right? So we just, I just want to talk about that, right? Because this is what our King James Bible has done. It has treated this as something that ought to happen, right? So don't you guys understand this? You're going to judge the world. Don't you guys understand this? You're going to judge angels. So when Joe and Bob are on the verge of going to a secular court, what you need to do is find the least esteemed guy in the church and let him make the decision. Well, let me just ask you a question. How would you do that? Would anybody like to stand up tonight and tell me who the least esteemed person in Westwood Heights is? We're all waiting. What criteria would we use to determine who is the least esteemed? And what does the word least esteemed even mean? Well, let me give you the way, some of the ways that it's used elsewhere in the Bible. In Luke 18.9, it is translated despised. Oh, so now it helps. Who's the most hated guy in the church? Let's let him judge. Joe and Bob can't get along. Everybody hates the guy anyway. Let's make him the judge. In Luke 23.11, it is, this is used of Jesus. They set him, here's the word, at naught. Or here's another use of it, Romans 14.3. Do not despise him that eateth not. Do not despise him. But that's not even where the real problem lies, folks. The real problem lies in correlating verse number 4 with verse number 5. What does Paul want? If verse number 4 is going, if Joe and Bob can't get along, you need to... Look, don't you understand this? You guys are going to judge angels. Well, this is nothing. So find the least esteemed guy in the church and give him the judgment. Then what do you do with verse number 5? I speak to your shame. Is it so there's not a wise man among you? So what does Paul want? Does he, does he want the guy that's most hated, or does he want the guy that's most wise? What is Paul seeking here? <clears throat> well, let me just say to you folks, without trying to work through all the grammar, that there is another way to read and understand verse number four. And that what Paul is really doing is he is not setting before them the what they should do. He is continuing to ask another question and that the least esteemed are actually the secular judges. So that if you posted it a question, verse 4 would read something like this. If you have judgments pertaining to this life and the life to come, if you have that kind of authority at your fingertips, why would you let those that are the least esteemed make that judgment? Why would you let them do that? Is, is there nobody wise enough in your church to sort through this? Which, by the way, those of you that have an ESV tonight, 
Let me just read to you the way the ESV deals with, treats 1 Corinthians 6.4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why would you hand that over to an unbeliever when right there in your presence is somebody who has far more authority than that unbelieving judge is ever going to have. And I would suggest, so that, that would be the way that I would understand it, and, and putting myself a little bit at odds with the way it reads in the King James. Right? That, that Paul is not suggesting on the one hand that we hand it over to the least esteemed, and then everybody doesn't like him, or everybody thinks a little of him, or everybody sets him as nothing, but he's still a very wise guy. And I think that there's no shortage of sarcasm in verse number 5. Remember, these are the people who seem to know so very much about how a church ought to be run and how Christianity ought to function. So if you have all of this wisdom, go back to chapter 1 and 2, if you have all that wisdom, you can't find anybody in the church that can sit down with Joe and Bob and find out what a decision is that would be pleasing to the Lord. And instead you bring it to the unrighteous. A reflection, again folks, a reflection more about the the condition of those who are bringing the suit than about the world to which they are bringing the suit. And finally then in verses 7 and 8, Paul addresses specifically those who are engaged in such suits. And so he speaks of the church at large a couple of times. You shouldn't be dealing with this before unbelievers. There has to be somebody in the assembly in light of the fact that God's people have judgments in the world to come. There has to be somebody who can deal with this. And again, Paul is not blowing off the offense. He is not suggesting that it's a figment of someone's imagination. But he does talk now along more spiritual lines to those who are pursuing such action. Verse number 7. Now therefore there is utterly a fault And what Paul is actually telling them is that they have been already defeated. Remember, you you go to lawsuits, you go to law to win, folks. You go to court to win. You don't go to court to lose. You don't hire a lawyer who, who prides himself on having a losing track record. There's a law firm in town, that's their slogan, we're in it to win it. Right, so I'm I'm going I'm going to the whatever di- number district court it is to to get my justice. And Paul says, "You have already lost. You've already lost. You have been completely defeated. Just in filing the paperwork, you have lost. You would be far better off. Why do you not rather take wrong?" 
you would be far better off to just take the bloody nose, take the empty bank account, continue to drive the car that is broken every third day. You'd be better off that way. Is Paul not arguing something that just cuts across the grain to us? We, but, but he lied to me and he robbed me and he, and he cheated me and, and he defrauded me and, and I want justice. And I'm going to go to the court to get it. And God said, and you've already lost. You have already lost. You would be farther ahead just to take the hit. That's what he said. That's the, that's the spiritual position. That is how radically different believers are from unbelievers. That's how radically different we are. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather allow yourselves, is the idea, to be defrauded, to be cheated, to be wronged? Do you see, folks, now why, why you can't win a victory in a secular court? You can't win a victory in a secular court because you're not supposed to be there in the first place if it's a lawsuit against a brother. Defeat it out of the gate. Defeat it out of the gate. And so again, Paul concludes, verse number 8. Let me bring it into 21st, 21st century vernacular. Nope, you're wrong. You're just wrong. That's all there is to it. And you become the cheater. That's what he said. And you become the cheater. Cheated a brother. Took him to secular court. The Lord never tells us folks to volunteer to go out of our way to, to take these kinds of hits. But he does point out to us that he knows what it is to suffer injustice. And he does assure us that he is the avenger. He is the avenger. He will make all things right. So it is worldliness on the part of the Corinthians. A defeat before the judge ever makes a decision or the jury ever hears the case. It is a loss for Christianity. All right, going to stop there tonight.